Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, all Cannonball listeners. Uh, this is uh, Daniel, your intrepid co-pilot, with an exciting announcement. Um, so... If you've been listening to us from the beginning, you know that we are, of course, consummately professional. This has by no means been a fly-by-night operation, uh, <laughs> but uh, that has been recognized by our podcasting peers. We are excited to announce that the uh, Cannibal, and I, I guess if you follow our social media feeds, you already know this news, but uh, in case you're new to the show or uh, for whatever reason, uh, don't follow us on social media, which uh, shame on you. Uh, well, actually, but you subscribe and listen to the show, so you should not be shamed at all. Uh, anyway, all this preamble to say, we are now uh, members of the Agora Podcast Network. And uh, this is really exciting stuff because um, not only is it a great organization filled with a lot of uh, really cool podcasts, it's also um, – well, it's also filled with uh, just good people. Uh, honestly, like a lot of – I've actually uh, in, in, in previous podcasting times have uh, worked with a number of the contributors – uh, to uh, some of the shows on the Agora Podcast Network, like uh, uh, Tom Daly, um, uh, Travis Dow, uh, and they are uh, just a, a a great bunch of podcasters. And if you are a listener to the Cannonball, I guarantee you that if you stop by Agora Podcast Network, they have a beautiful website. Um, check them out; they, you will find all kinds of new podcasts to uh, to interest and fascinate you because it is. Without a doubt, some of the highest quality uh, history podcasting, uh, we, there's history, economics, politics, uh, just all kinds of really cool stuff done by tremendous people uh, that we are now pleased to say we are a part of. So look out for – there will be some changes to the show as we sort of get acclimated to it. Um, you might uh, you might find us doing some uh, some product pitches, uh, some you know some uh, cross promotions. We should have exciting sort of cross promotions with other shows, um, you know, guesting here and there. But there's uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming. So uh, once again, uh, go check out if you haven't already Agora Podcast Network, our new home and uh, your one stop shop for quality audio content. Uh, that, uh, if anyone from Agora is listening, that's, you can totally take that for a new, uh, slogan for the network. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, on with the show, the exciting conclusion of Dante's divine comedy. Hello. 
Hello, and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is my co-host, Daniel Doty. Hey, hey. Daniel. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> uh, considering that I just spent a great deal of time trying to wrap my brain around a famously impenetrable medieval theological poem, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I this I I I was thinking to myself. I was taking a shower this evening. I was thinking to myself. I I can't I can't remember when I wasn't reading Dante. It seems <laughs> like we've been doing this forever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so I guess we should say this. Uh, this episode is, of course, uh, the the third part of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. So we've uh, we've already covered, of course, Inferno and Purgatorio, and now we continue on Dante's tour of the. Uh, the, the 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 realm beyond physicality uh, with uh, the Paradiso. So we've we've moved from, of course, we left off at the the Purgatorio, had its climax at the uh, the earthly paradise, uh, the Garden of Eden, as it is also known. Mm-hmm. And from there, we have moved on to the heavenly paradise. Um, and uh, man, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Claude. How how do we how do we? What's our way in? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. This honestly, uh, of the whole committee, this is this is the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the Inferno has the reputation of being sort of the the novices Dante. Uh, Purgatorio has the reputation of being sort of the the connoisseurs Dante, <laughs> and then the Paradiso is the one that no one likes or no one reads. <laughs> the the, the um, glutton for punishments, and, uh, Dante. <coughs> Perhaps. Well, it, it it has its defenders. I mean, it really does have its defenders, but it, it does have this reputation of, okay, you, you got the first two under your belt. You're good to go. I've read this before. I actually read it twice in undergrad, mm-hmm. um, and, and it was very helpful to have somebody who knows what they're talking about guide me through it. Uh, I don't claim to know what I'm talking about, but you know, like we always say, this is our attempt to read this stuff. It's nobody else's so <laughs> right. what we take from it, we take from it. Exactly. It's it's um, ours. It's in all of its struggles and triumphs, it is ours. Uh, it is a subjective uh experiencing of the Western canon beyond all else. <laughs> So, so I thought uh, a, a good way to get into this is is to talk about what makes the parody so the least read. Mm. Um, I, I figure what we can do is start out by talking about why it's got the reputation that it's got. Then um, I'm going to do the Wikipedia run through the the summary of what happens, mm-hmm. and I'm going to leave out a lot because there's a lot that either I missed, I don't understand, or or that I just have to brush over. And then there are a couple of particular things that I, I want to take a look at uh, that I think you also, you know, want to intervene with. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll see what what we can do with this. Uh, I, I think, it, okay, if you're listening this far in, I think you're hearing some of our exasperation, uh, <laughs> if that's the right word. This this was heavy going. This was very, very heavy going. Uh, the 
the the annotations to the inferno were helpful from a historical basis but you in order to understand what's going on you don't have to dig too far in a lot of the context and a lot of the action if you're willing to pay attention mm-hmm. you know takes you there uh, the purgatorio I, I felt the same way it, it deserves certain kinds of heavy annotation just to, to understand the historical personages that you're working with um, but the paradiso I, I think you pegged it this is material that Dante acknowledges no one has thought about before no one has considered before no one has put it together like this before Mm. it's abstract it's strange it's bizarre he's even got a warning in the second canto saying if you don't think you can keep up don't try this <laughs> right like the uh, i guess the, the way i put it is that he is very conscientiously attempting to express the inexpressible which is yes. of course <laughs> which is a which is a, a a profoundly uh pretentious thing to say but that, but that's exactly what he's doing like he's and, and of course that's always i mean that's always the challenge with the theological right like if you're trying mm-hmm. to if you have a conception of the divine as surpassing you know, you, you, you with your with your mere human mind cannot hope to encompass the true nature of the divine. Well, when it comes to trying to tell other people about the divine, you're you're behind the eight ball from the get go. And so it will lend itself, you know, I think as we were talking before recording, I kind of mentioned that like something that came to mind when I was thinking about that kind of paradox itself was like a Zen Cohen, where you have this tradition of this attempt to express this uh, this sort of enlightenment state thought and, and mind, but it's of course uh, it's not anything that can be grasped by the unenlightened mind, and so it turns it, it's 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 expressed as these kind of paradoxical puzzle statements, and uh, and with the with the I guess the expressed intent being to try to get the the listener or the, the reader of those little parables and, and riddles to sort of step out of their own mind, their own mindfulness as the, as they know it. And I feel like that's where I think that's a lot of what Dante's attempting to do, but it also, and I think what makes the, the Paradiso such as such an odd work and such a, um, such a challenging work, such a, an intimidating work is that he combines that with a lot of just, out and out didactic <laughs> explaining. <laughs> okay. It's a very so weird I, juxtaposition. <laughs> so I, I think that leads us into I, I've got my list of eight theses, um, and I will nail them to the wall. Mm-hmm. All right. So what is it that makes the parody so the least read or, or, or the biggest bear to get through? Okay, so first <clears throat> is the issue of translation. Um, there, there is no great translation of the Paradiso. I, I firmly stand behind Pinsky's Inferno. I think that's that's good going. Um, there, there are some moments where you're kind of like, eh, I don't know, but it's it's a good translation. Merwin's Purgatorio, I thought, was really really solid. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there have been attempts to translate the Paradiso. Uh, I'm standing by Hollander and Durley Martinez. Uh, between the two, I kind of liked Durley Martinez a little bit better, mm-hmm. uh, but both of them are, are making an attempt, and I think they get the the, the literal aspects of it, but uh, 
W.S. Merwin did a translation just of the final canto, and we're going to come to that at the end. And he shows, I think, what you could do with it. But it's hard to to translate for a couple of reasons. One is because, all right, I don't have any medieval Tuscan, but <laughs> from what I understand from, from the annotations that I've read, one of the things that makes it difficult is that the original is aiming towards pure lyric. Like, what it's trying to do is aim as close to you know, an emphasis on the sonic qualities as possible mm-hmm. to make it a kind of music. And <clears throat> that, I don't know how you would pull that into translation. Yeah. The, uh, you know, one of the translations I read was a, uh, it's a, it's a one volume translation of the entire comedy by a Clive James, who is an Australian yeah. Danteist. Um, and it's a fairly recent translation. The, I think really just like maybe five, six years ago. Um, yeah. But uh, and it was it was it was it was really the main one that I relied on for the Paradiso, um, and I did notice, and this is something that I that I always 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 notice is that anything that's in translation in English that has a rhyme scheme, I have to be wondering how <laughs> how, how either English or the original languages had to be disrespected in order to retain that kind of scheme. And I, and I understand that yeah. what he's, what he's attempting to do is, is retain that lyrical quality. And, but at the same time, like I, I instantly have to think like, you know, well, I mean, think of all the ways that, you know, medieval Tuscan can rhyme that English cannot. And if you, yeah. you know, if you're trying to preserve the semantic content or like whatnot, like there have to be a lot of, I don't know. It has to be a very compromised kind of thing. I'm always reminded of, uh, yeah. what was it? Uh, Alexander Pope who did like an entire, uh, tra- quote translation of the Odyssey in rhyming couplets in English. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he added gods and goddesses right. or made out gods and goddesses <laughs> and just had fun with it. I mean, that's what the 18th century expected. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, 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 it always just sort of reminds me of that like there's, yeah, yeah there's, there's going to be like in, in, until, you know, well, Claude, I guess that will be, of course, a project for now is to become fluent in medieval Tuscan dialect. <laughs> but until we do, uh, uh, we'll have to. Yeah, there, there's, of course, that yeah. you know, that's going to be a barrier. So there's the lyric quality to it, and there's also a lot of neologisms. Mm-hmm. Um, Dante was coining all kinds of, like you said, attempts to express the inexpressible, and he came up with all kinds of new words. He in hymns me in in you, and it's it's very bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> maybe it makes more sense in the original, but it doesn't quite come through. Uh, and it's also. It's where the vernacular and the blending of dictions apparently really shows. Um, one of the things that Dante did that was really controversial at the time, I, perhaps less so now, is using uh, a less refined and a less elevated diction <clears throat> to talk about high church material. I think the the um, the thing that Hollander was pointing out is towards the end, he comes right out and talks about... Um, the womb of Mary, the eternal mama. Mm-hmm. And um, one, he's using just some pretty blunt anatomical terms, and two, using kind of childish language to talk about Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of going the high church route, the adoration and everything, he's using the vernacular to to make it familiar in a mm-hmm. certain way and this intimate yeah movement. and that would have been that would have been in keeping with a kind of larger scale uh movement 
within the Catholic West, the kind of the, the cult of Marian devotion. And I don't mean, I don't yeah. mean cult in the pejorative. I mean, cult in right. a sense of a specific kind of worship. Um, right. And so that was, that was something that was, that was developing. And I believe it was fairly highly developed by the time that Dante was writing. Um, and something, I think, well, something more associated with like the, uh, the uh, sort of, Arising out of those sort of courtly love traditions of, uh, of, yeah. of the Provençal and, and things like that, but definitely would have been current uh, in, in Dante's yeah. time. But yeah, but it is kind of it is very strange to yeah. Here he is trying; to, he's expressing these like church doctrines and all this like extremely highfalutin stuff, but he is doing so like with these very familiar terms at times. Right. Okay. And so sometimes it, you miss that valence when you bring it across in translation. Mm-hmm. You can't quite get that. All right. So the second thing that makes it <clears throat> a little tough to read, and this is what you pointed to, is the didactic nature of the poem. Mm-hmm. It, it really is where where Dante is trying to you know to, to steal a line from Milton, justify the ways of God to man. Mm-hmm. Um, when slash if we ever make it to Paradise Lost, uh, you'll hear me rant about how much I hate the third book of that thing because it's it's basically where where Milton lays out his theology and has God explain, well, this is what I'm doing. This is how everything operates. It's dull as dirt mm-hmm. and it's obnoxious. He tries to square the circle by explaining the Trinity and it just makes no sense. Um, Milton leaves it in one book and then gets on with the action. Dante writes 33 cantos about it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it, it's, it is the nitty gritty details of a lot of the, the action aspects of canon law or or medieval theology that are either hard to get your brain around or you want to instinctively instinctively reject mm-hmm. one of the hardest things to I mean we'll get to it but one of the the toughest things to 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 countenance is where Dante basically asks well why should a virtuous pagan who never even had the opportunity to hear of Christ, why should that virtuous pagan end up in hell? And what he hears is, well, it just does. You don't know the mind of God. No. You know, you can't. So so some of that is, is it's harsh. Right. Uh, this is still a medieval poem. It's, it's harsh, and, it, and it's, it's interesting to... It's also, it's interesting on, like, which, which questions Dante takes the pass on. Like which yeah. which ones he's willing to go? <laughs> spoiler alert! In depth for long periods of time to <laughs> to explicate and to rationalize and to come to a sort of systematized view of versus the ones where he'll you know, just has you know whichever interlocutor is you know speaking the line just say like well you know you never know anyway moving on to this <laughs> celestial sphere <laughs> you know? yeah. but but well, but there's so, other ones where we'll spend like like drilling down and like giving like a almost lawyerly account of like what's happening exactly and so the the didactic nature of it makes it kind of a slog to read um at, at the end it it literally becomes a schoolroom mm-hmm. Uh, it, when when he gets to when he's about ready to sort of enter the 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 premium mobile, um, Peter, James, and John come down as his kind of dissertation committee, 
and he has a bachelor's exam. Um, they're questioning him on his faith. Uh, they're questioning him on his reasons for believing. They're questioning him on the ideas of love and hope. And it, it really is, it's his final exam. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's the dissertation committee from hell, except it's in heaven. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was stupid. But you, you get the no, idea. It, it, I mean, yeah. it literally is, it, it, it literally is didactic in nature. So that gets really bogged down and, and boring in a lot of ways, uh, unless you really care about uh, the I church was, I was going to say, though, it, it, it really, I am, I am a, I am a connoisseur of uh, heresies. <laughs> and I mean that from a, in like, a, not that I, I myself, you know, am, am a, am some sort of a heresiarch. I just mean that, like, one of the things I find most interesting about the, uh, I'm very interested in church history. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, but, and one of the things I think is most interesting is the interaction of competing schools of thought in interpreting these various traditions that we know of as Christianity. And of course, right. you know, I, I use these sort of roundabout terms because one man's heresy is another man's orthodoxy. <laughs> but, uh, but, but sure. from the standpoint of the, the medieval Catholic church, I'm very interested in the, the, the conceptions and, and concepts that they found heretical and how that, and how those sort of definitions came to be, how the orthodoxy as we know it came to come together. Um, so there are a number of places where actually the, the didacticism is, is interesting to me because I, I can recall like reading about like, oh, yes, I remember when Bishop so-and-so put that to, <laughs> put that to the floor at the Council of you know, Chalcedon and was voted down, you know, kind of stuff. But, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, that that's – yeah, it's – like I said, it's got its defenders. But, um, <laughs> no, anyway. So the the other thing, the the I, I'm sorry, I'm just being silly. But the 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 third thing that makes it uh, a little tough going is that it's literally slower. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 action is slowed down. There are less speakers, and they tend to speak for longer periods of time. Part of this is because heaven is nowhere near as filled as hell. And or Purgatorio, for that matter, um, there are just less people there, and I think Dante is sort of emphasizing that. And the the other thing is that you're in heaven. What is the drama actually going to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, the drama is learning. Uh, that I, that's okay. I, when I was reading this, I kept thinking about James Merrill's changing light at Sandover. We've talked about this, this poem, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit, you know, off the air, but, uh, it, Merrill wrote, uh, a long pseudo epic in the 20th century with the help of, of a Ouija board. Yeah. And <laughs> he contacted the spirits and they told him the secrets of science. It's very bizarre. But in the third book, which in many ways is modeled on, on Dante, um, the whole drama of it is a couple of people sitting in a room playing with a Ouija board and imaginatively they transform the room into a schoolhouse mm-hmm. and they move level to level to level to level as they learn more. Mm. And that's exactly what's going on in, in Paradiso. Right. But that's the only drama is, Oh, now I understand this. Now I understand this. Now I will ascend to the next sphere because I moved up a grade. Right. <laughs> I passed that test. I'm on. And so it's, it's less, it's less action oriented, which can make it, you know, a tougher go. Um, 
along with the didacticism is the fact that most of the speakers are speaking in these sort of logical dialectics. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'll move backwards and forwards. If you understand this, then this, therefore this. And so sometimes it kind of feels like reading... um, the the least exciting dialogues from uh, uh, of Plato. <laughs> okay, so, but it it's it's part of the process. If you understand this and you understand this, then it must mean this. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, there's also the visual nature of the poem. Uh, I, I'm going to rely on what uh, a professor told me in undergrad, but he, he was making the case that in medieval aesthetics, uh, the more bodily the thing is, or the more more sensorial the thing is, the more fallen it is. Mm-hmm. And so medieval aesthetics emphasizes the sight and the abstract to move out of the bodily. And, and you'll see and, that um, – yeah. You actually see that uh, in, in in the poem in the Paradiso, uh, where the uh, those those souls that uh, Dante the Pilgrim interacts with on the sort of the, the lower spheres, the spheres closer to uh, you know Orbis Mundus where we are, um, are you can make a, make make out an outline of their form. It, it's sort of described as there's an inner light shining, but you can still like make out sort of a, an outline. But as the further you go on they just become more and more just like lanterns. There's points of light that, that yeah. glow and, and they'll, they'll dim and, and brighten in response to things to indicate sort of emotional states. And, but they become more right. and more abstracted, less bodily, much, much more. And that honestly, that ties into uh, a great deal of the Neoplatonism, which will, <laughs> which will sort of somehow have to address in all this, because that's one of the very main channels that sort of feeds into yes. this, this theological vision. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there, there's the visual nature of the poem and the abstract nature of the poem. It is very tough to get a handle on what he's trying to describe sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, we're such a, a visual culture immersed in the, the visual and visionary that some of the descriptions are just plain goofy. Um, when he gets to the the sphere of justice, uh, all of the great, I guess, just rulers mm-hmm. first appear as lights, uh, then they form a cross, then they form a bunch of letters which spell out something mm-hmm. for him, and then they form a giant eagle which speaks to him. And it's it sounds like something out of a video game cutscene. I mean, it sounds like something out <laughs> or, of Final Fantasy. Honestly, what it what it uh, what it <laughs> what it reminded me of most was uh, marching band formations. Yeah. I don't know if you were in the marching band club, but uh, I was no. in my in my youth in high school. I played trombone in the marching band, and uh, <laughs> yeah, getting getting your spot, you know, and and getting everything trained to like make these formations and shapes and whatnot. Like that's immediately what I thought of. It was like, Oh yeah. The souls are like, Oh, it's like a marching band. I get it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's palpable in some ways. And it's one of the, the visual things that is easily graspable mm-hmm. in, in the Paradiso. But I thought it was just kind of silly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's me, but, um, yeah, so it's this this problem with the visual and the abstract. Uh, there's the issue with medieval cosmology and philosophy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of the the other things that that's a real challenge about this is, well, we know now that we're a heliocentric solar system. We know now that we're a solar system. Right. Uh, Dante was working from the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, and you move outwards, and that's just the most obvious of his physics that are different from ours. Yeah, uh, I guess I, we should sort of, from a broad standpoint, let people know we've been talking a lot about spheres and levels, but the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, the basic concept is that um, the, the universe could be thought of as a sort of almost like a Matryoshka doll of nested spheres. So that uh, we on the Earth are at the center of this, of this uh, you know, we have our own little, uh, we have our flat disk, you know, our, our flat Earth. Although, although, honestly, like a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the traditions that Dante, that this line of, of, of conception of the universe drew on, did know that the Earth was round, um, but it all gets a bit garbled. But anyway, but Dante does imagine, like in, in his sort of theological imagination, a, a flat Earth that's surrounded by the concentric, the first concentric circle, which is the one which the Moon is set into, um, and then from there it uh, goes out to, I believe, Mercury, and then Venus, and then the Sun. Uh, which, again, sounds <laughs> yeah. very strange, but the Sun is the fourth the fourth most out. Uh, but each of these are sort of, they're set in a sphere, uh, which are usually described as crystal spheres, not necessarily that they're literally made of glass, but rather that they were, of course, perfectly transparent. Um, and, you know, who knows what kind of matter they were made of. Or, you know, <laughs> or if they're even made of matter. I mean, honestly, like, I, I believe I've read that the case is made that when this cosmological vision was first developed in the schools of ancient Greece, you know, around the time of Plato, that the idea was more that they knew that this was a a a, a convenience, a, a manner of thinking of these things, which was not necessarily physically so, but rather a convenience for them. But of course, it's it's, it's always that way when. <laughs> When convenient metaphors get get sort of deabstracted and concretized, uh, um, but uh, but anyway, but but that's sort of the cosmo the sort of the basic cosmology yeah. we're working with is that Dante, after leaving the earthly paradise, is ascending through these various layers of celestial paradises on up to the prima mobile, which is the first moved. That's the Latin for first moved, which is that sphere which is the one directly between the rest of the spheres and the completely abstracted Empyrean, which is the actual yeah. abode of the Godhead. Yeah. So you got that? <laughs> yeah, everybody paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I mean. It's it's an attempt to use... I mean, it's, it's a medieval cosmology, and he's making an honest attempt to fuse all of medieval science, all of medieval philosophy, all of medieval theology... To fuse it into one thing, and that mindset is so different mm -hmm. than just our basic understanding of physics that you have to do some even more heavy lifting just to understand, okay, where is he even starting from, right. let alone where is he going? Yeah. So that's, that's something that's, else. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> all right, so there's the issue of self-contradiction, and I threw this in there because uh, it made me feel better. Um, Hollander, in his translation, the translation that he and his wife did, he claims that there's a good chance that Dante never fully revised, mm -hmm. uh, that there's some of this material that he didn't go 
back over or he died before he had a chance to go back over and really get everything I was going to say, like, he, he, he died very soon after the what we know yeah. as the completion of, of the, the Paradiso. And, and there's the possibility that it wasn't even completely completed, mm-hmm. that there was more that he could have gone back and done. Um and there are some contradictions in there. Uh, do this. I mean, we'll. we'll I, I okay. The first place that Dante goes uh, once he leaves the earthly paradise is the moon, and there's this real question about whether or not the souls on the moon stay on the moon, whether they float back to the Empyrean. Where in the Empyrean are they? And there are contradictory answers throughout. Mm-hmm. There's the question of whether. Dante is bodily in heaven. Uh, Sometimes he suggests that he followed the route uh, St. Paul did and went physically Mm -hmm. up into heaven. Uh, There's some other suggestions that this is a kind of visionary or dream state. Okay, so which is it? Are you physically there? Is this a divine vision? There's some contradictions within the text itself. And just knowing that maybe feel a little bit better about getting very, very confused. Yeah. Um, and then finally, there's the sermonizing. <laughs> um, and boy, is I, there. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, the didacticism is one thing, but it seems like at every sphere he's going into, you can't get past that sphere without somebody making a parting shot at how, hey, look, I set up this order, it was going great, but, you know, those popes just messed it all up, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. that pope there, if he hadn't done this, or these friars here, you know, I gave them the perfect rule, and they're just not following it. You people back on Earth, what do you think? Right. You know, it's it, it, it's a lot of what I just said. You know, <laughs> yeah. We, a, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of uh, raking you know raking some people over the coals just again and again, and you know we're left kind of thinking you know this is not a very positive heaven we have here. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like everybody's mad about what's going wrong on Earth. Yeah. Um, you know it. it I really think that at the end of the day, it wasn't Inferno where uh, Dante sort of uh, got his scores settled. I, I think it was in Paradiso uh, yeah, where he gets I, most of his scores settled. Yeah. So anyway, so that was – that's sort of what makes it difficult. That, that That's what makes it hard to, to get through this poem. But at the end of the day, I, you know – I. I was I was fretting this episode. I was fretting sitting down talking to you. I've been working and working and working. I I, I read the Darling Martinez first, uh, then went through and read the Hollander and read all the annotations, and then spent two days rereading the Darling Martinez and taking notes and taking notes and taking notes. I was mm-hmm. um, three hours sitting at a desk taking notes this afternoon, <laughs> trying to get everything organized. Yeah. And um, there, I, I can't say that this was the most uh, aesthetically pleasing reading experience I've had, but there are some really, really gorgeous moments mm-hmm. in here that I think make it you know really fascinating. And <clears throat> I think uh, uh, it would 
be a good idea to just sort of do our quick Wikipedia summary mm-hmm. of the poem. And uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk over, but I, I want to focus at the end of this episode on W.S. Merwin's translation of the final canto, because I think that does what Paradiso does best. That particular translation does best what Paradiso does best. And if we do sort of like a read through of that, I think we'll we'll get to that and hope he doesn't sue us. <laughs> right. So okay. You want me to start? Uh, yeah, but go for it, man. We'll let's let's go on this amazing journey. And uh, right. I guess do you want me to save save commentary for the end, or uh, so we circle back around to stuff, or like jump in with like you know? Uh, uh, oh, here's an interesting wrinkle I remember from that portion, or um, why don't we just take it organically? All right, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how to jump in, just jump okay, in. yeah. All right, so we don't even start in in heaven. We we begin uh, still in the earthly paradise. Uh, that we left at the end of Purgatorio. And the case that I was making was that the there's Paradiso operates on this weird kind of alpha and omega system where the ending wraps back into the beginning all over again. Uh, it does it within the poem and it sort of does it for the whole of the Commedia because Dante Pilgrim comes out the other end having learned all this, but what he's learned and what he's gone through still takes place supposedly biographically or within the fiction of the biography or, or the fiction of the biography that it lays out through the Commedia. Uh, it takes place before he's even been exiled. Mm-hmm. So this is all kinds of stuff that happens before the main event. So it's this weird kind of backwards writing from what you went through. Yeah. Um, and and to add to that weirdness, uh, Durley Martinez point out that the rhetorical device that he uses primarily throughout the Paradiso is um, this weird thing. It's Hysteron Proteron, where you say something that happened in the work backwards to the cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, it, old- like Memento. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the only other places I've seen it were in Memento and in Gravity's Rainbow, yeah, yeah. where the the explosion happens first, and then you backtrack to the rocket going off. Yeah. So I guess it's, um, it's this- I've I've also uh, uh, seen it deployed by noted science fiction author, late science fiction author Ian M. Banks, in one of <laughs> in his uh, novel, The Player of Games, one of his famous The Culture series. But that was interspersed with a more traditional. Uh, beginning middle end so it's especially confusing actually because it was like, you have one chapter of the story going from a to b and then the, the it would be interspersed with chapters of one of the other characters story being laid out from b to a and uh <laughs> anyway but we, we don't need to we don't need to get into the, the what issues i might have had in in, in that but <laughs> <laughs> well okay so uh anyway the it's that that also plays into the theology of moving back to the the prime mover, mm-hmm. the, the soul going back to the place of perfection that made it. Um, but it's just this weird thing. So we start with a poem where we're still in Eden, and Dante just sort of opens up the Paradiso, and he he and Beatrice float up to 
the moon. Uh, the first three spheres of the Paradiso are it's still heaven, but it's deficient in some mm-hmm. way. So the moon is there for people who, for whatever reason, made a vow and did their best to keep it, but broke it in some way, shape, or form. And that's where he meets uh, Picarda Donati, who was a nun who was forced out of the nunnery uh, by her family to marry somebody else. So she broke her vow to to God to be a nun for life. But she's still there, fulfilled in heaven, because um, it was a minor deficiency in the will. Uh, after talking about vows for two or three cantos, uh, Beatrice and Dante move up to Mercury, which is the realm of the ambitious, where um, I said... I guess the way to put it best is people were slightly diverted because they were working towards um, towards promoting the divine, but their ego gets in the way a little bit, yeah. and the, it, it, they get taken off the path. It's that kind of uh, it's that kind of intentionality again, where yeah, the yeah, the, the, the a person has done righteousness, but they did so for their own aggrandizement. And so, sort of recognizing, like, you know, so, so even there, God is like, yeah, I see what you did there. You're, you're on Mercury, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's where we meet Justinian, mm-hmm. and we're going to circle back to this, and you're going to tell me all about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of things so, to say about this day. <laughs> so then uh, we float up to Venus, and that is associated with love and the lovers. Uh, that's where Dante meets Charles Martel, if I've got my notes right. Yeah. No. And um, where they, they talk about predestination, and it's also where he meets uh, Kunitsa, and that's one of our... our I know you've got some more details about other people who end up in, in paradise mm-hmm. who you weren't expecting to see there. <laughs> Kunitsa is, is one of them because she was a, a, a more worldly woman who had several husbands mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages or, or in Dante's time that would <coughs> excuse me that would have been considered uh, adultery. Uh, she kind of had that reputation of being you know. And uh, that that would be one of those surprise guests. But yeah. anyway, she she fills him in on some more of the ideas of predestination, direct influence uh, of the di- divine as opposed to indirect influence of the divine, and so and, and so forth. Correct, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Kunisa is. Uh, I think we're, we're you know we're in the, the celestial paradise. There aren't really nearly as many personal acquaintances of Dante as there are in the Inferno, but this right. Kunisa was someone that he would have... They were contemporaries, if I recall correctly, he, yes? Yeah. He may have known her, okay. but he, he did know Charles Martel. Gotcha. And that was the thing. He doesn't recognize him. Yeah. Um, he. It, this gets back to your point that in, in Heaven um what you see is more of the the lantern or the light until the end. There there are a couple of moments where a couple of people suggest, you know, Dante is asking, why can't I see you as you are? And Benedict s- suggests there will come a time. He hints that in the Empyrean, 
Dante will have that experience. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that by the time he gets to the Empyrean, Dante does seem to be able to have that experience to see and recognize and understand who is there and who isn't right, there. Right, right. Yeah, because uh, he can – because, I mean, the way it's described, there would not be any reason why he would be able to pick out one shining light from another. But he knows that, right. like, oh, I'm you know, I'm speaking with St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, or, or what have you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and just, to, just as a quick uh, thing, some people might be confused that we're talking about how Dante would have been contemporaries with Charles Martel. The, the more famous Charles Martel is, of course, the Frankish warlord of the 8th century uh, and uh, who was, a, uh, I believe, the grandfather of Charlemagne. Um, this is a Charles Martel of Anjou. He was a, a sort of oh, thank you, right? But he, he was a contemporary. He was of the the Angevin dynasty. Those those sort of French nobles who ended up gobbling up a bunch of hereditary seats around the Mediterranean there for a for about a century or so. <laughs> right. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that, uh, that really threw me off when I was first reading. <laughs> well, not threw me <laughs> off exactly, but I was like, I, I was about to get all didn'tic on Dante because he referred to Charles Martel as a king, and I was like, uh, actually, Charles Martel was mayor of the palace. <laughs> And the Merovingian dynasty, he was not a king. But it turns out, no, this guy actually was a king. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So from from there, we float up to the sun. And one more time, this this is trying to understand the cosmology. His planets are all out of whack. Mm-hmm. You do what you can. But he floats up to the sun, and that's the sun is the place of contemplation. And it's or, – or it represents – the the contemplative right the sort of the, um, the light of reason uh, almost yeah. yeah and that's where he meets uh, first Aquinas he's got sort of two twin lights first Aquinas who gives the life of Saint Francis and then complains that the Franciscans aren't following the rule mm-hmm. then we have Bonaventure <laughs> excuse me Bonaventure who gives the life of Domini. And then complains that the Dominicans aren't following the rule. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it gets a little dull. But uh, that's where um, Aquinas starts um, sort of giving this idea. It ties into the Neoplatonism that uh, what is made directly by God is closer to the divine mm-hmm. because it's less imperfect. And then... Um, he, he gives this sort of encomium to Solomon as being the wisest of the rulers because he was practical enough to understand that he needs wisdom mm-hmm. and that the wisdom of Solomon wasn't esoteric theosophical uh, philosophy or theological philosophy. It was practical wisdom to know what to do at a particular yeah. moment. Horse sense, we might call it in today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's another one of those of just stop thinking. God's got it. Just relax. Mm-hmm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, so we move up from there to my least favorite section. <laughs> uh, I think I was sending you messages complaining about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to Mars, and Dante's a- ancestor, Cachaguida, goes on for three cantos. Yeah. Um, he gets the most lines, I believe, in the whole poem. Uh, Beatrice perhaps gets more, but it's it's the the longest section yeah. in the Paradiso. Yeah. Um, it's the centerpiece of the Paradiso. Uh, I think last time we were talking about the Purgatorio, and there's this central canto in the Purgatorio that's kind of the the linchpin in certain ways. And this is the centerpiece mm-hmm. of the Paradiso. Um, Dante made the centerpiece of heaven hell to read. <laughs> Because, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to keep doing that, but it's it's because he's got this ancestor who was a crusader. Mm-hmm. He was in the Second Crusade, uh, and you know we can talk a little bit about that. The Second Crusade, Hollander suggests, and I follow him on this, suggests that it's it's a major sort of animating feature of the Paradiso. Mm-hmm. And before we go too much further. Hey Daniel, you know anything about the Crusades? <laughs> I do, and specifically, I can I can sort of go into what what Dante is 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 sort of grappling with, and where you know Casio Guida because basically Casio Guida spends his a lot of his time explaining just what a great idea and how good the Crusades are. And well, when he's not going off on a misogynistic, uh, yeah. obnoxious rant about luxury and how much better Florence was back before That's right. it intermarried <laughs> with other towns. Yeah. So he's not only xenophobic, uh, racist, and uh, misogynistic, you know, he's yeah. also a crusader. But uh, yeah, so he... he he goes off on what a great idea the Crusades right. were. Why does he do that, Daniel? Yeah, so Dante is writing at a time when – so when we talk about the Crusades, um, there's a really – we fall into a lot, a lot, a lot of historiographical traps. And I'm so sorry that I just used the term historiographical, but everyone bear with me. I don't, I don't want to be as didactic as Dante's heaven people here. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by that is that we the, – the way, the way the Crusades are broadly understood – is largely an artifact of later interpretations and it does yeah. not reflect how the participants thought of themselves. That's right. a lot harder to get to. Um, and what's also, we talk about crusades as a, as a term and that lends a lot more sort of unity to them than, uh, than might be warranted uh, a sort of, because the thing is they were, crusades were a dynamic concept that sort of grabbed hold of uh, the medieval Catholic West for a while, <laughs> and and but it was right. but it was it was a dynamic set of ideas that changed over time. The what we know of as the Crusade began is sort of the the butterfly that flapped its wings was when the Byzantine Empire was having a very hard to the, what we call we called it the Byzantine Empire. The people at the time would have known it as the Roman Empire, but it was the, the, the surviving polity 
of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Then there's a direct line right. going back all the way to the Roman Empire, all the way through. So, you know, they would just call it the Roman Empire. <laughs> um, but we'll call it the Byzantines. And again, for historiographical convenience, I will do so as well. Uh, but anyway, they were having a really hard time with a newly emergent people on the Middle Eastern scene, uh, the Seljuk Turks. And these were kind of newly converted. These were steppe nomad peoples from Central Asia, newly converted to Islam. And so they had the kind of the fervor of, of, the, of the convert. And uh, also they were steppe peoples, you know, raiding nomadic horse archers. And so they were getting up to what they were good at. Um, and that ended up being really making hay for the Byzantine state in what is today Turkey. Well, what is today Turkey because of the Seljuk Turks. That's why we call it Turkey. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the geographical term at the time is Anatolia. Anyway, they get their butts kicked around 1071 in Anatolia. The the emperor of Byzantium sends out a request for – basically, he sends a request to the pope in Rome because that's the closest thing really to a sort of central figure in Western Christendom. And he sort of sends out feelers like, hey, do you have any like good bands of mercenaries you could send our way to help us like stabilize the situation here? Through a game of telephone – this becomes a call to holy war almost because the the problem was and it, it shifted from let's save the byzantine empire to let's take jerusalem because uh certain of those seljuk turks um this was a sort of confederation of people um but certain branches of the whole uh, seljuk turk uh uh polity took control of the city of jerusalem from their their earlier rulers the fatimid Caliphate, which had been, which was an Arab uh, Muslim power, a Shia Muslim power, based in uh, Egypt, and the Fatimids had been, you know, up to this point, Christian pilgrims were going uh, to and from Jerusalem and other holy sites in that area of the world, largely unmolested. Like you might pay a pay a toll or something like that, but that was all part of like, hey, they were like, sure, you know, hand over your gold, you get to go see your holy places, you know, that's it's all good. And honestly, this part of the world was at the time still majority Christian. Um, it was under Muslim political control, but the people right. who lived there were still largely – they had been Christianized under the Roman Empire, and they were by and large still Christian. The problem came when the Turks took over from the Fatimids. They decided to cut down – like they were like, no, you know what? We're putting the kibosh on this pilgrimage system. And so Christians were cut off from their ability to make pilgrimage to the holiest sites in their faith. That's what got everyone fired up. That's what became the raison d'etre for this movement to get fighters from Western Christendom to that part of the world to fight the Turk. It, came, it became like, look, this is armed pilgrimage. We, we, we will be able to make this pilgrimage, but we will have to do so under arms because someone is going to try to stop us. Um, <laughs> So the, so then the, and that's, that sounds like the worst idea. <laughs> well, that's the kind of, that's the germ of crusade though. That, that's the, the idea is that we will, we need to make this holy journey. Someone will try to stop us. So we need to be able to defend ourselves. And from there, it's a short leap to say, well, in order to ensure that we can do this, we just need to take control of this area ourselves. And that's what happened after so, the first crusade. So why was – what was the Second Crusade and why was it so important to Dante? Right. And that also explains – in the, the Second Crusade and how crusading as an idea shifted is really going to come to play here. So after the, the success of the First Crusade, they actually did, despite all odds – and it's an amazing story full of a lot of awful, awful things being perpetrated by all actors. It's really quite terrible. But – 
I've played Assassin's Creed. I understand. <laughs> right, yeah. So yeah, there, there you go. We have you have a deep understanding of Ismaili uh, Shia because you, of course, have played Assassin's Creed. Um, <laughs> sure. That was the thing that surprised me but, most. I, I cranked it up and I was like, wait a minute, We're, I'm part of the assassins. I'm I'm part of the, the esoteric Ismaili Shia sect, but they never really got into that stuff. <laughs> Um, All right, but please. But anyway, sorry. anyway, sorry. So the second crusade. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so these the the Catholic, uh, basically these these nobles uh, from uh, mostly northern northern France was really the the epicenter of crusading fervor. So these are mostly from like northern France and what is today Belgium. Uh, carve out some feudal states there in in the the Levant area, what is today Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and parts of Turkey. And about 50 years after those were more or less successfully established, and I say more or less successfully established because they happened to be extremely lucky in the fact that all of the Muslim powers at that time had sort of fallen into fractiousness. So you had a lot of different Mm. Muslim principalities to play off each other, and no one was really all that concerned with kicking them out. Except when the Seljuks got uh, a wild hair again, and they took one of the the first crusader state that has been established at the city of Edessa in what is today, I believe, uh, eastern Syria or northern Iraq, just in the kind of upper Mesopotamia area. So anyway, that's the that's the call that goes out for what becomes the Second Crusade. The idea is that, and, at the, and no one would have called it the Second Crusade at the time. Right. All these numberings, all <clears throat> of these numberings were later conveniences. But right. you had this fellow, St. Bernard, uh, who was a member of the Cistercian Order of Monks. And these were a highly wealthy, extremely wealthy, extremely influential, and extremely hardcore about crusading order of uh, of, of churchmen, abbots, and, and monks that were very, very influential. And St. Bernard was the guy who, like, had the most fire to preach, like, this basically a reinforcement crusade. Like, we, we have, you know, we have access to this holy land. We must defend it. Uh, it's ours now. We must go support it. Um, and the Second Crusade was notable because that was the first time that actual kings took part. Uh, and of course, you know, it had been 50 years since the what we call the First Crusade, and people would go on crusade. They would, like, make their pledge. They would go serve for a time and then come back. But this is called the Second Crusade because this was the, another big gathering of people to go you know, take Edessa back. Um, and it included, you know, uh, I believe Louis the seventh of France, um, the Kings of England, uh, the King Conrad of Germany. These were the sort of the, the great princes of the time went on this, uh, crusade, which failed. Uh, they, <laughs> of course they didn't take back Edessa. Well, they had a minor success actually in a bunch of English knights who were, uh, they were making their way, uh, down the uh, coast of Portugal to get or uh, the so what would become Portugal, and they stopped off to help the county of Portugal conquer what is today. Uh, well, it was then, but Lisbon, their capital, which became yeah. their capital. So that was kind of the one success was kind of offhanded. Like <laughs> we'll help you out and do this, um, but but the rest of it, yeah. But that just, set the tone for the kind of how crusading ideology developed. It became much much more about projecting Catholic power. Yeah, and, and yeah, that would play into Dante's politics now. Right. Because Dante, and he, and he brings it up with Justinian, which I guess we can kind of talk a little bit about what, yeah, why Justinian... Yeah, because... Right. Because this ties yeah. into Dante's sort of political theological vision here. So Justinian was... Um, he was a an emperor of what we today call, like I said, the Byzantine Empire. They called themselves Romans. And it's really, especially in Justinian's day, he was still speaking Latin. 
that was still the official uh, language of the court before they shifted to Greek so actually soon after just sitting in the rain. Um, but of course, at this time, the Roman Empire did not control Rome. <laughs> it was in the hands. Right. It was in the hands of uh, a kingdom dominated by Ostrogoths, a people we know of as the Ostrogoths, uh, who were kind right. of a, a sort of a military elite, uh, sort of set on top of the old, uh, you know, Roman population. But the and it's interesting that Justinian, because you, know, you would think like you know who are the famous Roman emperors? Almost nobody except for a nerd like me would say Justinian. Uh, you know. Just because, like, it's it's after we're all infected with the with the disease of Edward Gibbon, where Byzantine right. things are bad and are should be ignored, and it's a tale of, of corruption and whatnot. So everyone ignores everything that happened after 476, <laughs> when when the last uh, Western Roman Empire or emperor was deposed. But uh, so it's, it's it might seem a little strange that Justinian is selected to be the <clears throat> exemplar of the the perfect Roman imperial catholic polity you know the 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 perfect roman imperial catholic and it's because number one his reputation was a lot stronger back in the middle ages because the church really celebrated his memory because on his orders a very bloody 20-year war kicked the ostrogoths out of italy and this was good for the church because the ostrogoths were arian christians they were not orthodox catholics they uh-huh. were adherents to a branch of Christianity which had been declared heretical by this point, but they were very attached to it. They they were not – the Visigoths, their cousins, the Visigoths over in Spain were actually converted to Orthodox Catholicism uh, around this time. But the Ostrogoths hung on to Arianism, which made them anathema to the, to the, to the popes and the, the Catholic powers. So when – good orthodox justinian comes in kicks them out well you know he's a great hero to the church so his memory is preserved well, as a great hero well would that be a kind of precursor to this crusading fervor yes to take back the holy sites right you're taking back the holy sites and justinian actually in dante's telling justinian says that the the roman empire was cursed when constantine who was normally held up as again a celebrated christian emperor but he cursed the empire by moving the capital from Rome to Byzantium, to Constantinople. Uh-huh. So Justinian was a sort of restitutor, restitutor okay. orbis. He was restoring the earth. He was restoring Roman power and, re- and taking Rome again to make it holy again. So he's a he's a very good guy. He's also sh- sort of lifted up as a paragon of justice because it was under Justinian's reign that uh, a, a panel of uh, learned lawyers was convened to rationalize and condense Roman law, which was a big deal at the time because Roman law was largely um, it wasn't so much statutes; it was these collected imperial precedents. So laws were basically laws were established by whatever the emperor decided in a particular case that was brought before him became the law. So it was all just precedent. Right. So Justinian decided, like, there's got to be an easier way to do this. <laughs> he convened, you know, some of the, the leading lights of the uh, the great legal schools. There was one in uh, in uh, Beirut, actually, in Lebanon, was the how, was the home of the great legal school of Eastern the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. Convened a bunch of graduates from you know the 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 Harvard Law of the ancient world uh, to condense and trim out the fat, codify this this law, which became the basis of what we call even today Roman law. It's one of the two big legal traditions in Europe, the other being common law, which we in the United States are 
our, our laws are by and large derived from because it's derived from the English common law. But a lot of the other states in Europe and around the world, thanks to colonialism, uh, there's are rooted in this Justinian uh, this Justinianic code. So, okay, yeah. so he he's a codifier right. and a unifier of states. Uh, and he's engaging in this crusade-like activity, so this would reflect Dante's kind of right. uh, desire for a literal Holy Roman Empire. Exactly. He wants a Roman Empire that is holy. And he knows that the current Holy Roman Empire is a is a sad shambles <laughs> because he goes – You know, he'll have a lot of – you know, Dante the Pilgrim himself and a lot of the – uh, persons who are Dante the writer's mouthpiece in this work will go on yeah. and on about Guelphs and Ghibellines, which were two squabbling, which again, we can't go into too much uh, into it here, although I really do need to suggest that I write a blog post about Guelphs and Ghibellines, and I think yeah, I will. Yeah, please. But, but basically there were two factions struggling over interpretations of uh, imperial power versus church power. And Dante is looking back on the time of Justinian as a time when church and state were in fact totally fused and in complete harmony. Well, you know, quote unquote, complete harmony. Um, and, and he's not far off the, far off the ball there because it was a kind of, there was an ideology, which uh, we refer to as Caesaro papism, um, <clears throat> which is, of course it combines the term Caesar and Pope, uh, but it sort of reflects that in the, in the Eastern Orthodox world, there was a much sort of, there was a much sort of uh, uh, there was less contention between the what are the powers of church and what are the powers of state. It was one sort of theocratic right. uh, 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 fixture there, and so just, yeah, Dante is looking back at this the reign of Justinian as this idealized theocratic, crusading Catholic monarchy, monarchical unified state, and Casciaguida is there talking about how great crusading is. And I, I, I'm definitely convinced that Dante's sort of idealized vision of what should be going on in the world is a pan-Catholic imperial state dedicated to crusading in order to bring at least Christendom together. Because by this point, crusades had been waged not only against the Muslims in the Levant, but also against declared heretics in the heart of Europe. Yeah. They have been they, there have been crusades at this point were going on in the north of Europe uh, in uh, what are today the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, German largely German speaking crusading knights were literally forcing populations to convert to Christianity by by fire and sword. They were literally yeah, 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 crusading yeah. their way through these pagan peoples, and so that that crusade like it had lost that limited sense of armed pilgrimage to defend our right to visit holy sites and had become this kind of crusading is the way in which a unified Catholic civilization deploys its force to the detriment of other civilizations around it. Right. Right. To backtrack for five seconds, who takes Dante into his final vision of God St. Bernard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, St. Bernard, the very the self-same St. Bernard, who was basically the biggest cheerleader of this of this sort of militarist yeah. Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, this I is, knew if I asked you about the Crusades, <laughs> I'd get something good. This is totally my hobby right, so, and tying the Crusades together <laughs> with uh with uh, uh, uh late antique uh, Eastern Roman politics. I mean that you couldn't ask for a for a better thing for me to, to go on about. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So we go from Mars, and we—I mean, the the Katagoida section—it it really is. I I didn't find it all that interesting, but he, he's got about three cantos. Where first there's a tirade against luxury. Second, there's um, a tirade about the ancestry and decline of Florence, and then he gives Dante the heads up. Here's what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. All throughout the Commedia, uh, different souls, first in hell. Uh, when they really wanted to get his goat and then in purgatory when people would say hey I think I know something maybe not quite just give you a heads up something bad's going to happen Kasha Guida says oh you're going to be exiled (laughs) just he doesn't mince his um, you know mix his words he just says right out this is what's going to happen to you Um, be prepared but you can't stop it so it's another one of those moments of um uh, is this predestination? Once you know it, do you have free will? Does God intervene or how does he not intervene? And Dante just has to sort of gird his loins and say, okay, it must be for a reason. I guess I'm going to have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we move out of Mars finally and get to Jupiter And that's where we have the just rulers. And this is what uh, I was referring to. All of the lights form the giant eagle or the band formation (laughs) that tells him, uh, you know what? That's apt. That's apt. I was thinking Voltron, but um, I I, I like yours better. Well, when you think about it, the marching Uh, band is the Voltron of high school. (laughs) So I think I think it's totally fair. I, don't know, it's, I think it's also worth pointing out this is where Justinian would be if he wasn't so uh, if he wasn't so prideful about his accomplishments. Yeah, there <laughs> he would be here on Jupiter, but instead he's back on Mercury. Well, so the eagle uh, is the unified voice of all the just rulers, mm-hmm. and they basically tell Dante. Um, there are certain things you can't know or can't understand. Hey, check it out. Within us, there are a bunch of pagans who somehow found Christ. We don't know how. You can't know the mind of God. Right. Just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they put it a little less bluntly, but, you know, that, that that's one of those moments, uh, if we have time, I want to circle back to because mm-hmm. it, it is, I don't know, it's hard to take, or, or at least for me, it was, it was hard to take. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so he moves uh, up to Saturn and is greeted with silence. Um, there he meets Peter Damien, who tells him about predestination. Um, Saturn is uh, where he has to climb Jacob's ladder to get to the next sphere. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, Peter Damien and Benedict uh, tell him about predestination and how the Benedictines are messing up um, what they're supposed to do. Uh, Beatrice is no longer smiling in that canto. Um, there's silence around because his human form, this is another one of those moments where he seems to suggest that he is in human form as he's in paradise, but they say your human body, your mortal self can't take what we would say you're not ready yet to hear it and you can't see us Beatrice says if I smile it would be too blinding for you Um, the latter is this sort of transition point where he moves from one thing to another and what we're going to see is that 
finally, when Dante gets his third baptism, mm-hmm. uh, he had his first on Earth. He had the second in Purgatorio in uh, Crossing the Lethe, and he has a third one in the Empyrean mm-hmm. where he washes his face in the waters. Uh, once he goes through that, then he can encounter the blessed as they are. But until he gets to that point, he's still sort of operating in the mortal sphere. And then Benedict gets in some jabs about how um, the Benedictines just aren't living up to what he said for them to do. Like every time he meets a monk, they're just mad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, and this is a very, this would have been very current in Dante's time. The because you had uh, among the like the, the friar orders like saint benedict less so like by dante's time the benedictine order was kind of the old news of monks uh and it's the franciscans and dominicans who are the new hotness uh they're the ones who have like okay. the energy they're the ones who have if you're real you know if you're looking to renounce the world and you know and join a monastic order you know those, those are the ones to go into because of course they weren't monks exactly they were friars they you would take monkish vows but you would still you wouldn't live in a in a in a, a set away abbey you would be out among the people uh preaching right um but it was also because of that because so much energy was there there was also a lot of contentious energy these were the franciscan order and the dominican order the franciscan order especially were hotbeds of what we might call a kind of reforming anti-clericalism. Uh, they were uh, they were okay. hotbeds of persons who persons of deep piety. Then that could not be denied, but who were extremely disappointed and critical of the temporal actions of the church and the church hierarchy. Um, so that and and the thing is, I think Dante. Dante, of course, is very sympathetic to those criticisms, <laughs> given yeah. given how many times he has he has various uh, persons talk talk smack about the church, and for you know, uh, and and a couple of uh, and a couple of interesting uh, sort of persons who show up. I, I think um, just just real quick to mention, um, I forget where he shows up. But I made note of this that one of the persons that's here in Paradise is Joachim of Fiore, and Joachim yeah. of Fiore was a mystic. He was an abbot and a theologian who was also a mystic who in about a century or two prior to when Dante is writing had a series of visions that he developed out into a kind of, uh, a kind of systematic salvation history um, of how God's salvation worked. And it, in it, you have the age of the father and the old Testament, which gives way to the age of the son and the age of the church with the incarnation of Christ and the, the establishment of his church and the way Joaquin laid it out, this would eventually give way to the age of the Holy Spirit, wherein man would have direct knowledge and access to the Holy Spirit and knowledge of God. And so that there wouldn't really need to be a church or a church would even be a hindrance to your understanding uh-huh. of God and the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, he, <laughs> was, sounds problematic. he was, of course, denounced viciously in his time. But, of course, but so many people could see the corruption of the worldly church. They could see that right. in, in many ways it stood in the way of pious men. Um, so his, his, his ideas and his prophecy that this reckoning was coming, that this, this changing over, a new age was going to dawn. Um, uh, it, it's it, it was of course extremely influential in his day and age, and and I believe sort of echoed through the ages. Honestly, with any time you have anyone attempting to systematize history, I, I think they were a, a debt to Joaquin Le Fiore. Um, <laughs> but here's this guy who was considered extremely radical, 
um, whose ideas were basically anathema to the church hierarchy, whose ideas were circulating quite a bit among those radical friars, and here he is in the celestial paradise. Right. So it's it's Dante endorsing a kind of a kind of anti clerical. Right. It's, it's still he's, he's still very dedicated to the idea of a Catholic Church and Catholic faith and Catholic dogma. But it's almost a kind of. But the the corruption is there. Right. The corruption is there, and he's very upset about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to jump in and make a correction. Um, in my notes, I had the sun as the place of contemplation, but it's not. Oh, okay. The sun is the place of wisdom, and Saturn is the place of contemplation. Okay. Hence the the symbolic silence. Gotcha. The, yeah. um, but that's why why Benedict is there, and that leads into this other thing that's going on in the Paradiso. Uh, the closest to paradise that you can get is contemplation of the divine. Mm-hmm. Like what – when they finally get to the Empyrean, it's a giant rose full of people, kind of like a giant coliseum, staring into God. Mm-hmm. They are contemplating God and and God is this sort of mirroring of all love mm-hmm. in this strange Neoplatonic way. Um, but contemplation is um, absolutely essential for Dante. And I, I just wanted to make that correction because I didn't want to screw it up. Okay, so anyway, they move up Jacob's ladder uh, from Saturn into the fixed stars. Um, that is where Dante has this downward look. Mm-hmm. Beatrice tells him, look down, and what he sees is how far he's come. He has two downward looks in the Paradiso. And it's really fascinating. The first is, hey, take a look. You've gone this far. It's kind of like, hey, you're graduating high school. Think <laughs> back on you know where you've been. But then the, the second downward look... He looks down and sees how far he's come, but the sun is blocking the way, and he's like, well, I don't even really want to look back anymore. Mm -hmm. It's about looking up again. It's almost like these two parallel looks. One is, you know, in awe of how far you've come. The other is, yeah, 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 that doesn't matter. Let's get up higher. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of where, where Dante has learned to to see as the divine sees to get and that's yeah. also that that looking down is one of the I know you mentioned that like there 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 are moments despite all the didacticism there are moments of real beauty and poetry in the, in the paradise oh, yeah and and this was one of them for me I, I really really it stuck in my mind that in in that moment I I uh, I don't know if it's Dante the Pilgrim or or Beatrice. Uh, describing as such but the earth looking down on it is described as that small threshing floor. And yeah, that's the second downward that's the second, look. Yeah, and I loved yeah. that because not only because it's, it's a sort of a more or less sort of direct allusion to, uh, of course, Christ speaking of separating the wheat from the chaff, um, which is, of course, that's what you do on a threshing floor. That's you know that's what that that place is for. But also, um, it, it just really you know thinking of looking down from these heights and seeing the earth. And it's a threshing floor. It's a place where everyone is there, and they're they're beaten and thrashed arbitrarily. Yeah. And it's a place of confusion and arbitrary beating. And you know, and no wonder it's so confused and people are so awful all the time and and whatnot. Because it's all just one. It's a. It's just sort of describing it. It's, it's sort of almost like pityingly describing it as that little threshing floor. 
But that really, yeah. that was a, a moment of great poetry to me. I, I, I had to stop for a moment. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's one of the moments that, that, that really hits home. I mean, there, there are a couple of them for me. I'm, I'm going to circle back and, and get to a couple of them. But, but yeah, that, there's that downward look. And then in Canto 23, uh, we have this – it's the, the church triumphant. It's the, the triumph of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees the first vision of Christ. Uh, he sees the first vision of Mary. He sees Gabriel and then all ascend – drawing him further upward. Um, he moves from there to the fixed stars, and that's where he has his final exam with uh, Peter, James, and John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's actually in um, Canto 26 where he meets Adam. Yeah. And, and I, I, I thought that was an interesting moment for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, Adam says that... Let me see if I can find it. Uh, Adam says that it wasn't the literal eating of the apple that caused the fall. It was the 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 transgression, right? Just it the was act of transgression. It was the well, it was, and also the 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 desire to be as God. Right? Yeah, like the yeah. he desired like because he believed the serpent when he said, "Hey, if you eat this fruit, you'll you'll be like God." And so the transgression yeah. is not so much disobeying – well, you know, it's disobeying God's orders, but it's also what – you know, the root of that, like, oh, I'd like to be like God. Like, well, buddy, no one can be like God. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was, now my son, not the tasting of the tree in itself was the cause of so long an exile, but only the going beyond the mark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's – He's making this case about the difference between the metaphor and the the literal meaning, which picks back up when he explains his own language. He says, the language that I spoke was all extinct before Nimrod's people became intent on the unfinishable work mm-hmm. for no rational effect because of human preference, which changes following the heavens, has ever been enduring. This is in the Durling Martinez, and I hope they don't sue me. Yeah. It is a natural operation that man speaks, but whether in this way or that, nature allows you to do it as it may please you. Yeah. So, he, he, you know, uh, a couple thousand years or maybe a thousand years before uh, Derrida, <laughs> yeah. not a whole thousand, but about 700 years before Derrida, yeah. he's he's arguing the kind of arbitrary nature of science. Yes. Yeah. And, and he does it even in in this differentiation between the symbolic function of what he did and yeah. the actual thing that he did. And what's interesting, the between the, yeah. what's interesting to me also is that uh, at, I'm not sure if it was as much of a thing this early, but I know for a lot of, uh, for a lot of Renaissance thinkers, um, especially the ones sort of attuned to the, to the esoteric traditions, th- there was, a, there was a, a bit of a, a mania for trying to discover the Adamic tongue and there was this idea yeah, that yeah. of the purity of language, and that if we could only, if we could only find somehow tease out the language which Adam spoke, it would grant some sort of power and control over the physical universe, like it had, or it has some kind of special properties that would be the perfect philosophical language. And here's Adam, you know, Dante has Adam himself saying, like, "Nah, it doesn't matter." 
I spoke a thing. I had a name for these things, and other people said other things. Like it doesn't matter. God gave us the ability to speak and have language, and that's the important part. It doesn't matter what specific language you use. And I just thought that was that yeah. was pretty terrific. I was reading that, and I was like, man, there was you know because there were these there were these you know gentlemen scholars who would like take an orphan boy who hadn't yet spoken and and lock him away in order that no one speak to the boy so that when he finally did speak we would know the original adam's tongue <laughs> instead you just tortured a kid <laughs> jeez yeah okay so they move up to the Chris, uh crystalline sphere and the uh prima mobile and that's when we get the second downward look mm-hmm. and and that's uh what you mentioned about the threshing floor mm-hmm. And it's obscured by the sun, and Dante doesn't even want to spend much time looking at it anymore. It's time to move upward and onward. Um, in Canto 28, we get Beatrice describing the geometry of heaven. Uh, let me ask you something, Daniel. Did you understand it? Nope. <laughs> me either. Okay, so and, in 29... Yeah. So that, and I, I, think it's, I think it's worth going into the... I believe that might have been intentional on Dante's part. And I think this part... Uh, yeah. I think it's one of his Zen Cohen moves that he's describing... It's almost like an M.C. Escher yeah. illustration. Like, it's impossible shapes that he's describing. And I think that's supposed to get across that, like... Okay, I'm going to try to tell you about something. I can't tell you about it because it cannot be told of. So here's what I'm going to try to yeah. do. I'm going to try to break you out of any kind of, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, but yeah, I, I, if you asked me to, to draw a picture or build a model, I would, I would punch you in the face. Cause of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in 29, <clears throat> excuse me, we have the, the description of the angels, the, mm-hmm. the different kinds of angels, what they do, how they operate. And there's a question of why create the angels and um, Beatrice basically says it's not because he had to, it's because – and it's not because he wanted to because that would indicate desire. It's this kind of spread the love sort of thing to contemplate the angels contemplating him. And that – I mean, all right, when we get to the very end, we can talk some more about the Neoplatonism, but the way – God seems to function. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are two terms that always come up, uh, or, or one term that always comes up is reflecting. It's a reflecting light. Right. And at the very end, there's this question: all of the 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 blessed in the Empyrean are looking at the reflected light. But if they're looking at the reflected light, what is being reflected? The suggestion seems to be them. Mm-hmm. That partially the love of God is acknowledging um, a kind of love of the self and acceptance of the self, which is this weird kind of well, it's, back and forth. Right, it's, it's a feedback. It's it's like uh, yeah, it's like this mirrored feedback. Well, it's, it's like when you stand between two mirrors and you have a cool infinity effect. You know, where the the yeah. love of God is is infinite. It I, it would be infinite anyway, but it's infinite in part because. We're all reflecting it back at each other, man. How about yeah. that? That's I mean, kind of lovely. It, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is. But it's this. I, I think feedback loop is the yeah, the yeah. way to think about it. Yeah. But um, but yeah, uh, and Beatrice has this interesting thing where she's claiming that the the angels. She's urging Dante, and Dante through her is urging against theological speculation because the angel's view of the divine is unimpeded mm-hmm. 
but on earth, our view of the divine is unimpeded. Don't try to know God on earth. Wait until you get there. Just do what he says. Mm-hmm. So it's another one of those didactic, just do what dad says. Right. <laughs> and, um, all right. So it's it's in the Empyrean in Canto 30 that um, this this is one of those moments that, that I found really, really fascinating. It's, it's, again, Dante trying to describe what cannot be described. He gets to the threshold of the Empyrean, and um, it doesn't look like what it is. Uh, this is in the Durling Martinez. And I saw <clears throat> light in the form of a river, radiant as gold, between two banks painted with wondrous spring blossoming. From that flowing issued living sparks, and on every side they entered into the flowers like rubies circumscribed by gold. Then, as if inebriated by the fragrances, they plunged again into the wondrous torrent, and if one entered it, another came forth. <clears throat> The deep desire that now inflames and drives you to know what it is you see pleases me more, the more swollen it becomes. But of this water you must drink before that thirst and you may be satisfied. So spoke the son of my eyes. And she added, the river and the topazes that enter and come forth and the laughing of the flowers are shadowy preface of their truth. Not that these things are unripe in themselves, rather it is a lack on your part, since your eyes are not yet strong enough. So when Dante gets to the Empyrean, he sees everything as a kind of flat river mm-hmm. with these weird gems sparking off on the side. It's like the light has become fluid, mm-hmm. and it's two-dimensional. Um, he has to bathe in the waters again and wash his face again. It's kind of like the third baptism. And he says, there's no little child that more quickly rushes with his face toward the milk if he awakens much later than his custom than I became to make better mirrors of my eyes bending toward the wave that pours, for, uh, pours forth for us to be bettered in it. And again, the eyes become mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's reflection, 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 reflection. Right. Uh, and as soon as the eaves of my eyelids drank from it, then it seemed to me, instead of being long, to have become round. He has this weird moment uh, where what was two-dimensional all of a sudden becomes three-dimensional. What had looked like a flat river, he suddenly understands is this giant Colosseum-like rose with all of these tears circling this thing, which is God. Um, That's one of those moments where I was like – Okay, <laughs> this yeah. is cool. This, right. Yeah, I get it. and it's it's really. I was really struck by. Uh, and again, here you know, this is this is where I, I bring my uh, my 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 street criticism, my my gut, my gutter, <laughs> my gutter genre uh, uh, literary history. Um, but uh, it, it was it reminds me of all the times in like science fiction literature when a you know the author is trying to get across a kind of like paradigm shift about. Uh, dimensions beyond the three spatial dimensions that we know um yeah and it's and it re- yeah it like really prefigured like a lot of like there was a i was especially reminded of a um there was a uh clark ashton smith story who was a kind of contemporary of the much more famous hp lovecraft but he wrote in a similar vein of kind of you know weird horror fiction slash you know, planetary fantastic, fantastical stuff. But he had a story where a, uh, a, a guy sort of accidentally, you know, falls through the veil and uh, sort of into the fourth or, or even fifth dimension. And the way that Clark Ashton Smith, the language that he uses to describe it is, is as such of, you know, the, our, our point of view character sees this field of bizarre, impossible shapes 
that are totally still and yet at once clearly in motion. And and yeah, you know, the the, yeah. the sort of the point of view character and Clark Ashton <clears throat> Smith, you know, is describing all the trouble he's having describing what this looked like because he can't. <laughs> and yeah, I was very blown away by that. I was like, oh man, people have been people have been trying to do this for a long time, like this kind of spatial ex- expanding your spatial reasoning out and and sort of you know, yeah. and, and of course for for Dante it was from two D to three D, but of course what he's I mean what he's obviously trying to get across is you. As a as a as a small frail human with your small frail human consciousness, you keep seeing you think you see God, but all you're seeing what's that Platonism again? You're you're, you're just yeah, seeing the yeah. shadows on the wall. You're not yeah. You're not seeing the full dimensionality of what is really there. So, yeah, absolutely. And so okay, so once he gets inside the Empyrean, um, he has to. He has this other moment. There are a couple of moments uh, where there's a mirror of the Purgatorio. Um, the 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 sort of high dramatic scene in the Purgatorio is the look back for Virgil and finding he's not there. But we don't get uh, an, any time to think about that because immediately Beatrice is calling Dante to task for all the bad stuff he's done. Mm-hmm. Um a couple of times in the Paradiso, Dante makes these turns to look because he's scared or because something's going on, and Beatrice is always right there until the very end in Canto 31. Um, <clears throat> the general form of paradise, my gaze had already fully grasped, not yet halting to be fixed on any part, and I was turning with rekindled desire to ask my lady about things of which my mind was in suspense. I expected one thing, but another answered me. I thought to see Beatrice, but I saw an old man clothed like the glorious ones. His eyes and cheeks were suffused with benevolent rejoicing. His compassionate bearing was such as befits a tender father. So he's gone from the mother, and he keeps calling uh, Beatrice, he keeps describing her like a mother. So he's gone from the mother to the father. Even Virgil, he turned to like a child to a mother, mm-hmm. and here it's a child to his father. And where is she? I quickly said. Wherefore he, to bring your desire to its last fulfillment, Beatrice has sent me from my place. And if you look up in the third rank, you will see her again upon the throne her merits have allotted her. Without replying, I lifted up my eyes and I saw her making herself a crown by reflecting from herself the eternal rays. Mm-hmm. So again, it's the reflection creates the blessedness and yeah, it's mirrors one more time from the region that thunders highest up. No mortal eye is so distant. Not one that is lost deepest in the sea as was my gaze from Beatrice there. Yet that deprived me of nothing for her image was not descending to me mixed with any medium. Um, He could be, he felt as though he was at the bottom of the sea looking up, uh, to Beatrice, mm-hmm. but nothing was getting in the way, and you could see her perfectly. So, who he has now is Saint Benedict, who guides him into the the final vision. Uh, first, he has to give us the seating arrangement. Uh, Thirty two <laughs> is a who's who of who's in heaven and how they're seated, and there's a whole symbolic function which uh, I did not find fascinating at right. all. <laughs> yeah. Did you? No, we can honestly uh, we can probably kind of you know skip all that all stuff. Right. Yeah, it, it's a, it's like you know it's a yeah it's a it's a who's who of famous Bible t- Bible persons 
for the most part. Yeah. yeah. So, so you got the Israelites there, and you got the Christians over here, and you got these people here, and these people here, and this, and it makes a big cross or some such nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so uh, I, I want to move on to the very, very end, and this is where I think we can talk even more in depth about Neoplatonism. Or not, as the case <laughs> Yeah, honestly, we're, we're going a little long, and I guess we don't need to go too, too deep into that. But, yeah. yeah. But, um, but what, what happens is uh, St. Bernard guides Dante into his final vision, and in order to do so, he has this prayer to, um, to Mary. Uh, Mary is going to vouchsafe and... and uh, St. Bernard with all of the other saints is going to pray to Mary. Mary's going to vouchsafe the vision and Dante's going to look up mm-hmm. and see what's there. Um, so he he looks up. The eyes that God delights in and reveres fixed upon the one who had made the prayer, uh, St. Bernard, showed how dear uh, devout prayers are to her. Then they turn toward the eternal light into which we must not believe the eye of any creature can pass as clearly. And I, who was coming close to the end of all desires within myself, refined appropriately the fire of my longing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love how Merwin put that. Uh, oh, and this translation can be found in Merwin's selected translation. It's, it's just a great volume of his own translations. Yeah. Um, I was coming close to the end of all desires. This is where all desires finally will be fulfilled. Within myself refined appropriately the fire of my longing. Right. So the desire itself has been refined to the point that the only thing there is to desire is the divine. Because remember, you know, and when we were talking on the purgatorio, like all those, the various you know tiers of purgatory were describing you know, how the the base longing for knowing the divine was, you know, sort of shifted off track or twisted some way. And that's where the same yes. comes from. Like, you know, for like the lustful, for instance, the lustful were closest to their earthly paradise because yeah. it was, it was, you know, the, 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 the longing is there. The longing is real. And just where we go wrong is having it sort of adulterated this way or that and, and turned away from the true, sort of oneness that that you know that we ought to be sinking um yeah. and that's yeah he refined appropriately the fire of my longing like this longing is there don't let the, don't let yourself think that you're longing for anything else other than this understanding of the divine you know exactly so Bernard with a smile made me a sign to look upward but I was already of myself as he wanted me to be so he anticipates he doesn't have to have somebody to point out to look up anymore. Beatrice throughout the whole poem is saying, look up, look up, look up, look up, look up. But now he's finally ready. I I don't want to look anywhere else. This is my total contemplative attention and focus. Uh, For my vision entered as it grew pure, deeper and deeper into the beam of the high light, which of itself is true. After that, what I saw was greater than speech can portray, for at such a vision it fails, and at that extreme, memory fails. So speech fails, and memory fails, because remember, this is supposed to be his memory of what he saw. Recounting, yeah. And my, my mortal self cannot recount as it should be. I'm limited in what I can do. Right. As one who sees when he is dreaming and after the dream, the imprint of the passion stays and the rest does not come back to mind. Mm. So am I for almost all of my vision has vanished and still the sweetness born from it is distilled in my heart to me. So this is one of those self-conscious kind of 
meta-poetical moments where we're back to the moment of writing. Mm-hmm. This is the moment of inscription. I am trying to write right now what I saw, but I cannot describe it. Right. Memory fails. Like after, words fail. yeah, after the dream, the imprint of my passion stays. The rest does not come back to mind. That's like uh, when uh, you do something terrible uh, in a dream your wife has, and she's mad at you the next morning. <laughs> Right, yeah. like, like, but the feeling is there. Right, right, yeah. It's like, yeah. I don't know what it was, but the feeling is there, yeah. right? Thus in the sun, the snow loses its seal. Thus in the wind, whatever oracle the sibyl left on the, le- on the light leaves is lost. The, the meaning, uh, the ultimate meaning, the transcendental meaning, it's scattered. Mm-hmm. It cannot stay in, in the mortal world. O highest light lifted so far above mortal conception, lend my mind again a little the way you appeared then, and to my tongue grant the ability to leave to the people of the future only one single spark of your glory, for by returning to my memory somewhat, in sounding in these lines a little, more will be understood of your victory. Okay, in in the very beginning, um, th- there's been a maneuver throughout the poem um, it's weird. I'm not quite sure why, but I have a suspicion. Dante moves from Virgil to Ovid. Mm. Um, the 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 classical tags in Inferno are mostly Virgilian, or they come from. Um, uh, but he he's mostly drawing from Martial epic. Right. And in the Paradiso, he mostly moves to Ovidian tags, yeah. tags from the Metamorphoses, and and even um, has comparisons to himself to Glaucus and transhumanizing, mm-hmm. uh, moving beyond the human, moving into something that is other than than human or other than mortal. Um, at the very beginning of the Paradiso, he opens with a kind of uh, plea to Apollo as a, a plea to the muse, like a call to, to Apollo. Uh, he echoes that here, except it's a call to God himself. Mm-hmm. Illuminate, show me again just a tiny spark so that my tiny spark can be what what sets it all off. Um, I believe that so piercing was the ray which I endured that I would have been lost uh, if from it I had turned my eyes away. One of the things that Merwin emphasizes in his translation is, I believe, mm-hmm. I think. It's it's very, very conditional. And I remember that for that reason, I sustained it more, bold, more boldly until my vision and the infinite goodness became one. The vision, the actual sight, and the divine become one. You can only apprehend it through sight and through abstract reasoning yeah. and logic and then brings it all together. Oh, grace abounding that brought me to dare direct my gaze through the eternal light until I poured into it all my sight. In its depths, I saw that it contained by love into a single volume bound the scattered pages of the universe. Um, to imagine, that, I mean, this is the book of life, mm-hmm. you know, the universe as the book of life. And it's bound by love. The binding for the whole thing is this care and love that we have for each other. Substances, accidents, and their relations in such a way seemed to be mingled that what I say is a simple glimmer of it. I believe I saw the universal form of this knot because I can feel my joy expanding as I tell of it. So the actual telling of the tale is going to do that act of connection, which maybe will replicate 
part of what the divine can do if it can't actually do it. Yeah. I believe I saw the universal form of that because I can feel my joy. Yeah. One moment brings me more oblivion than five and twenty centuries brought upon Neptune's wonder at the Argo shadow. So my mind, wholly caught up, went on gazing with a fixed and motionless attention by its own gaze constantly kept burning. So this comes close to that sort of Neoplatonic right. divine fixed and motionless attention by its own gaze constantly kept burning. Yeah. So it's it's in motion because it's still. The gaze is continually burning by what fulfills it. And it's and that, that sense of... Um, th- yeah, there's that sort of neoplatonic sense that you know, we, we really don't have the time to get all into it. And, it, and, it's like with, and I don't want to suck your momentum here because it's just a really beautiful explication of this this final climactic vision. But that's that's the Neoplatonic idea is that the uh, the universe as we know it is created from emanations of the one. You have the one, yeah. the perfect, like all all potentialities, all existences are contained within the one, which is perfection. And as such, it cannot change. It is changeless because it is perfection. If you if you have something that changes one way or the other, well, that must mean either state was not perfect, so it can't be perfect. Right. But obviously, things change and and, and do everything all around us. So it's emanations from that one perfection. Small portions of it emanate out to then themselves emanate other things from there. And that's how we get – and that's actually um, when I believe Beatrice was describing the, the arrangement of the angels. And she describes how actually like you know, Dante asks like, well, if you know, God is complete and perfect and immortal, how can he create immortal things? And she says, well, the only things that God did create – himself are the the powers the angels the thrones which from then he indirectly creates the rest through their emanations right yeah and but then that also but man is a special case because god himself formed the shape of man and god himself breathed the breath of life into man so what about our failing decrepit bodies Uh aha that's where the bodily resurrection comes in because at the completion of god's salvation plan and all these souls we haven't really mentioned, but all these, you know, a few of the souls have been talking about it. They're only temporarily disembodied because the culmination right, of the right. plan will be the new creation wherein human beings who God wants to keep around <laughs> uh, <laughs> will be fulfilled in their immortal perfection with new immortal heavenly bodies. Um, exactly. So, yeah, but I thought that was, that's, I think, the, the clearest sort of extremely neoplatonic element in Dante's cosmology and in Dante's yeah. vision is that God himself did not actually directly create the physical world as we know it, except for ourselves and our souls. Um, yeah. And that's our special link, and isn't it? And what we're doing, it's back to the the, the rhetoric of the, the return mm-hmm. is the soul's return. One becomes such in that light that it would be impossible ever to turn away willingly to see anything else, for the good which is the object of the will is all there in Mm -hmm. it, and what within it is perfect is defective outside it. So, yeah, you wouldn't even want to turn away. This is the looking as the final culmination of the totality of being. From here on, my tongue will fall even shorter with regard to what I can remember than an infant still bathing at the breast. 
not because more than one simple aspect was in the living light into which I gazed, which is the same always as it was, but through my sight, which, as it gazed, was growing stronger, one single appearance was taking shape before me while I myself was changing. So it's not in the divine to change, it's in us to change and transform and be more attuned Mm -hmm. to it and become one with it. Inside the deep and clear subsistence of the exalted light, three circles of three colors and one magnitude appeared to me. And so this is the triune God, God the Father, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, And the one seemed reflected in the other as a rainbow in a rainbow, and the third seemed fire-breathed equally from one and the other. So he's trying to describe the Trinity Mm -hmm. as best he can. Oh, how short speech falls, and how feeble for my conception, which, after what I saw, cannot even be described as little. O light eternal, who in yourself alone abide, and alone know yourself, and known to yourself, love and smile on yourself. This is that Neoplatonic, God is all perfection and mm-hmm. self-sufficiency. And it, yeah, and, and uh, calling back to that, I uh, just a, a couple lines ago, where he mentions like all all that is in it is perfect, and if it is, and, and what is within it is defective outside it. There's that emanation yes. again, like what we think of as the the fallen and corrupt world is just there are certain aspects of the one perfection that removed from the totality of the one perfection, of course, are going to be defective because it's not part of the one perfection. Yeah. That circling which conceived thus came to be seen in you as reflected light when my eyes studied it for a time seemed to me within itself and in its own color to be painted with our likeness so that my sight was held completely there. Now, Hollander and Durley Martinez both um, make a claim that uh, what he sees is the sun, mm-hmm. is, is Christ. But if this is reflected light, and, and this is what I'm talking about here, what he sees is the part of himself that is perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like us. Uh, and it's not the part of himself singularly egotistically gazing on that it's the understanding of the common humanity right. and the love we all have for each other right. i mean it's I, I i think merwin phrases this you know beautifully as the geometer who concentrates on measuring the circle and cannot find the needed principle in his thought so was i at what i had just seen I wished to see how the image fitted in the circle and what place it occupied, but my wings had not been made for there, although there was one flash that struck my mind, bringing to it what it was wishing for. Uh, What Dante can't convey to somebody else is the, the visionary moment, but he can say that he had the visionary Mm -hmm. moment because the visionary moment is so personal and yet also so general. There was one flash there that seemed like, aha, mm-hmm. this is it, I understand. And what he's talking about is trying to square the circle. I mean, literally trying to square the circle. Right. We do not have the capacity to understand it. I do not have the capacity to understand what I was contemplating. But for a moment, there was that one flash. Like, I, I get it. Here power failed the high fantasy but my desire and will were turned already like a wheel that is moved evenly by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Um, in that moment, 
will and desire are turned toward the thing that they should be turned toward to, the thing to which they should be turned. Mm -hmm. There we go. I was an English (laughs) teacher once. Um, And and in that moment is that perfection. And and you know beautifully, he ends every canticle with the stars, Mm -hmm. always with that upward look. Always, you know, looking back to hopefully. Yeah, better. and I guess we should say that's that's the end of the poem. That's the that's the end. Yeah. So, but it's also the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but I think that's 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 marvelous that there's you know, there's no, it just ends. It it, it ends with yeah. him trying to explain the sight of the divine thing itself, the Godhead itself. And then it's over because what you know? Who who cares what happens after that? <laughs> you know, but you're right. It's it's the beginning because it, it does sort of you know tie us back to like you know looking up and looking at the stars. But I I really was struck by that because I kind of expected like, well, does he ever talk about how he gets back down? You know, <laughs> no, it's just, it just stops. It, it, yeah, I, I mean it's it's the, it's a weird ending. Mm-hmm. It's just like, uh, and and what what I think is all right. We started by talking about, yeah, I'm going to move back to the beginning. We started by talking about how difficult and, and somewhat of a slog mm-hmm. this poem is. I mean, it, it's got its riches, it's got its its jewels, but it's it's really kind of a slog. And there's a lot you kind of have to look past as a, a 21st centurion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's that ending which I, I really find beautiful i can't describe it to you Mm -hmm. but i can describe the feeling it had in me i'm trying to get back to that and realign everything so that i can get back to it my will and my desire to become one to become one with the divine again hopefully totally i hope it inspires something like that in you and it kind of sort of does um if anything if you've ever spent a long time studying and thinking and really meditating on something then there are these moments in the Paradiso that that will hit you because that's in some ways what this is all about it's learning, meditating becoming more attuned, more aware and finally, hopefully becoming, you know greatly attuned to whatever this, this love is um he can't express it. He can't explain it. How can you express it? How can you explain it? But he he almost gets you to the place where you want to experience how he experienced. Um, as much of a slog as Kachigwita is, yeah. uh, there are those moments that I think make it. And, and the one thing I always remember is uh, the second time I read this in undergrad, I had a, a, a really, really good uh, professor who was teaching. It was just kind of like a general humanities class. If you're going to be an English major or if you're majoring, majoring in the humanities, you had to take it. was just sort of like a foundations class. Um, I may have talked about it before. I don't know if I did. But we read you know, Homer. We read um, some Greek tragedy and some Greek comedy. We read uh, selections of the Old and New Testament. 
and we sort of finished uh, uh, we read Virgil we read um, I can't remember what else but we ended with the whole of the Commedia mm-hmm. and <laughs> our professor uh, he was a romanticist but I think uh, everybody had to teach this humanities class at some point and he was a really really nice guy he was really really uh, funny and intelligent but I remember when we were doing this he said you know I was raised Catholic, but I haven't believed in much of anything since I was like 14 or 15, like most people who are raised Catholic. And he said, but um, reading Dante, I want to believe. Yeah. He said, that's that's the most powerful uh, thing for the poem. And I think that's it. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in uh, the literality of, you know, intercession of the saints mm-hmm. and the Virgin Mary. But seeing Dante's final vision or him trying to recount that final vision, I want to believe. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's that spark he was hoping to send off into the future. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And but one, I think one one question I'd like to put to you, and it's one that I have been wondering about, and reading the parody so really it struck at home. Do you believe that Dante really did have a mystic experience he was trying to express, or was he trying to imagine what a true mystic experience would be for him? I don't know, but I would err on the side of he experienced something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and wait, okay. All right. We, I, I, there's a, 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 it's an interesting book. It's kind of a confusing book, but it's and it's kind of a weird book. But it's a book by Virginia Jackson on Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson is a, a, a Dickinson scholar, you know, and and she wrote this book about how Dickinson is an enigma because because there's this desire to get back to an originary Dickinson mm-hmm. or an original Dickinson, but our method of publication is not the method of publication she pursued. She made her own poems. She made her own books. She sewed them up and and put them in a, a, a chest in a room. So you can't say that Dickinson didn't publish. She published. <laughs> right. She didn't mass publish like we think of mass publication and she wrote poems to friends that's a form of publication yeah. that's that's getting the poem out there the the confusing thing about dickinson is we know everything about her we don't know what the the intention for lack of a better word mm-hmm. the intention was in the poems mm-hmm. But we know that there was an intention. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We know that there's an intention because the poems are the evidence themselves. And I'm going, you know, up my ass to get to my elbow. But that's what I would say about Dante (laughs) is the poem itself, the writing itself seems to be the visionary moment for him. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was the... This was his manner of achieving mystic experience. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I, because I, I would say the evidence is there in the Paradiso. I, I, I'm making a couple of leaps here, but I this is – well, you know what? It's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, the evidence is in the Paradiso because he's emphasizing so much 
the writing and the inability to say it, it's almost like that that fused moment of contemplation that fused moment of composition seems to be the visionary moment for him um, at, at, at least as I understand the text or, or how the text seems to be speaking to me yeah. um, I, is that a literal I went out of my body upwards uh, like Paul and went to heaven and talked to all these people okay I brought it up at the beginning of, of <laughs> our discussion did James Merrill really believe he was talking to the spirits? Yeah. Well, in a perfect Merillian for formulation, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. Do you conjure the spirits when you allow the works to speak through you? Do you conjure the spirits metaphorically when you allow older classical works from antiquity to speak through you to allow you to express a descent to the underworld. Yeah. Um, I maybe I've read too much Merrill, but that's how I I think about Dante doing this, and I think that's a visionary experience. Absolutely. I, I sound like Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day. Maybe not the God, but a God. It may not be the visionary experience, but it's a visionary experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, I think that's, I think, uh, that's how I feel. That, that puts as good a bow on this as, as we could hope for. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah, it's a really beautiful, a beautiful thoughts, Claude. Beautiful thoughts. And yeah, well, I, I, that's um, honestly, man, we, we did something I never thought I would do. I read the entire Commedia. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> I finally oh I finally my did my homework. <laughs> well, this you know what this has been some heavy lifting yeah. and I think we need a little bit of a break. So, um what we're going to do uh we got a couple things coming up. What we're going to do next is move on to Moliere. It's light, it's easy, mm -hmm. it's well hilarious. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, Moliere is going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to be reading uh, Tartuffe and uh, The Misanthrope next. And, uh, you know, probably the only translation you'll be able to find is the Wilbur translation. And that's great because Wilbur's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we're going to be reading Moliere next. And I'm also trying to arrange uh, – I have a, a good friend – who I've known since middle school, uh, who is now a professor of theater history and an absolute francophile. That's awesome. And yeah. so he, I, I'm trying to hook up an interview with him to give us some background information about Moliere and the French theater because the French theater was very, very different than the English theater. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not sure what's going to come first, you and I stumbling our way through Moliere, me doing the stumbling, you <laughs> swatch buckling along, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, or, or whether or not uh, I'm going to be able to, to talk to this friend of mine but those are, are two things that are coming up shortly yeah. so hopefully we won't need as much annotation <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, you know, we're, we're through We've, we went on quite a journey ourselves a Dantean odyssey through Dante's own work oh, and now it's time man. to reward ourselves kicking back with uh, with some delightful French comedy but yeah man this is this All has right. been a wonderful it's been a wonderful experience sharing this with you Claude I've, I've learned a hell of a lot and <laughs> I I've come away with uh, no I mean I'm, I'm serious though like I, I you know I, I doubt I ever would have done 
I, I'll tell you right now, I doubt I ever would have actually said, no matter how much I would have wanted to, I doubt I really would have sat down with the Comedia and engaged with it as much as I did if it hadn't been for wanting to talk about it with you uh, and sharing and sharing this conversation with the listeners. So, you know what, this is, and again, this is what it's all about. For, for me, this is an entirely selfish project. I'm glad people enjoy listening to it, but it's all about getting me to do my homework and talk with my awesome friend Claude about it. So thank you. <laughs> Oh man! Well, thank you so much. Uh, I I guess we'll be back in about a month's time, and we will probably be less exhausted with the text than we were this time. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much, yeah. and I'll I'll talk to you in about a month. Sounds good, man. Man, we'll see y'all later. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.